I want you to turn to um, Genesis chapter 2. And I'm going to be quoting a lot of scriptures tonight. But we're going to end up um, hovering around Genesis chapter 2 and 3. But let's just pray before we read scripture together. Father, you have received our worship, we believe. We trust at least that you have. We could sense the incense that was rising and the angelic hosts that were responding to our worship here in the name of Jesus. And we felt in a sense that we had been carried somewhat into the courts of heaven as we were around that throne And we want to just say, you're holy, Lord, you're worthy. That throne of lapis lazuli with the rainbow around it and the figure on the throne like molten metal and flames of fire. We cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, we want to see your glory. We want to experience your glory. We want to know your presence tonight. We want to be delivered from talking about things that we haven't a clue of. But we want to actually enter in experientially to your presence. So presence yourself with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you promised through the Lord Jesus Christ that you would manifest yourself, Lord Jesus, that you and the Father would come and make their home with us by the Holy Spirit. So come, we pray, for your glory. Amen. I want us to consider tonight the presence of God in the Garden, in the Garden of Eden, first of all. But I want to generally talk to you a little bit about the presence of God and where we're going to go with this series. There's actually more in Scripture, believe it or not, about God's desire to dwell with people than people's desire to dwell with him. Now, think about that for a moment. In fact, his great passion, the passion of his heart, has always been to dwell in the midst of his people. We'll see that tonight in the garden. We'll we'll be touching on the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the temple and Jesus Christ who is God in human flesh manifest among us. And we'll look at the Holy Spirit coming into the church and how, as Mitch has already referred to, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temples of the Holy Spirit individually and corporately, his temple. And how one day yet to come, There will be a coming together of heaven on earth and God will dwell with his people and they will be his people and he will be their God. And there will be the new Jerusalem in which we will dwell forevermore if we belong to him. And so really the Bible, the core message, is about God's desire to be in the midst of his his people. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the core theme. And therefore, if that is the case, surely our emphasis ought to be there. And uh, when we gather and 
in our individual lives, the preeminent focus ought to be the personal experience of the presence of God in our lives. So how is that? To actually know the glorious presence of God. Now, some people might say, well, surely God is omnipresent. You know that word omnipresent means? We know what present means. Omni means all. So all present means that he's everywhere. And there's no doubt about it that this is a biblical truth. In uh, Psalm 139, some of you will know these verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths or in hell, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere, not even in hell, and that's a whole subject on its own. You can't escape God in hell, you know. His presence is in hell. We'll leave that for another series. Hell belongs to God, by the way. So you can't escape God in hell. What you don't have in hell is fellowship with God. But don't think you can escape God in hell. You can't. That's what, we'll not go down there. But that's why it is hell, by the way, for those who don't believe and are unrighteous. That's why it's hell, because God's there. And they're of another nature. God is everywhere, that's true. But that must then be the case for unbelievers as well. God's everywhere for them too. If he is everywhere, then he's everywhere for them, yeah. But they don't know it. They're not experiencing the presence. And that's where my emphasis is in this series, about experiencing, being cognitive, aware, perceptive that God's around. And then some might say, well, there's the omnipresence, but then there's also Christ's presence that is promised to the church. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, <laughs> you hear it in prayer meetings, ad nausea where two or three are gathered together, that my name there am I in the midst. And uh, very often it doesn't feel like Jesus is in the midst. But there is the promise that Jesus said, if we meet together in his name, he'll be there as the church. And yet, at the end of the New Testament, we have... One of the churches that Jesus uh, uh, spoke to through the writings of the Apostle John, Laodicea, and Jesus says to them that he is shut outside the door knocking to get in. So we've got this tension of where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. He's there, but he's often shut outside the door of the church now, he hadn't yet spewed this church out of his mouth as he said he was going to do because they were lukewarm. But they, though he hadn't spewed them out yet, they had already shut him outside. So, how then are we to understand what I'm talking about, the glorious presence of God? Is something over and above his omnipresence? Is something over above his church presence, if you like. I'd like to compare it a little with the Spirit's work within the Christian's life. When you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't have the Holy Spirit if you're born again. You do. Romans 8 verse 9 says, whoever does not have the Holy Spirit does not belong to Christ. So if you're a Christian, you're born from above, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's a bit like the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. It's a bit like Christ's presence in the church. He's there. He's resident. You understand? He dwells within your spirit if you're born again. 
But what we're talking about is him being president. His holy, complete, awesome power and character being experienced in overflow. Continually being filled by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5 and verse 18. So what I'm talking about is not this you know, cerebral theological knowledge, I believe that I am a recipient of the Holy Spirit when I was born again, but you are actually walking experientially in the overflowing power of the Holy Spirit. You have awareness of the presence of God pervading your very being, spirit, soul, and body. So the presence of God is everywhere in his omnipresence. He is in the church as Christ promised, the promise of his presence. But what I'm talking about in in this series is the personal and conscious knowledge of the presence of God. And even intense experiential knowledge of God's presence that is over and above just fact. Are you with me? Would you like to know about that? Well, often this is a characteristic of revival. If you've read anything about revival, you will know that the presence of God is one of the major features, if not the greatest feature. I think it was Duncan Campbell described the Hebridean revival like this. He said, God was everywhere. Brian Edwards wrote a book by Evangelical Press um, called Revival, and the subtitle was A People Saturated by God. So we might call this revival presence, if you like, but I'd like to call it the manifest presence of God. So there's his omnipresence, there's his church presence, but this is the manifest presence of of God, or you could call it to an extent the abiding presence of God. First John talks about our fellowship with God, and um, we read in John 15 about Him abiding in us and we abiding in Him. So there is this ongoing fellowship with the Lord, and I think the two are important the manifest presence of God that we witness in revivals and moves of God, and the abiding presence of God. There's no Pentecostal theologian on one occasion, put it like this. In revival, God comes down, but we want a God who stays. That is the abiding presence of God, where we have a conscious, perceived sense of God that is both practiced in our lives and preserved day by day and even year by year. Now, I want to tell you here that this is different than simply knowing God. It's good to know God, but this is more. Let me illustrate it to you like this. Imagine one of our normal, beautiful winter's days that we have here in Northern Ireland, and um, the wind's blowing and the rain's going sideward. And um, you have a friend whom you've known from childhood. You went to school with them. And this stormy day, you're out and about doing your, your groceries or your messages, and you're all wrapped up in your winter gear. And you actually brush shoulders with this old friend of yours, but you're so wrapped up in the hoods up and the scarf and everything that you, you don't recognize them. Do you still know them? 
course you know them. You've known them forever. But the, the benefits of your friend's presence has eluded you because you failed to recognize their presence. That's what I'm talking about. Many of us know God in a personal way, but we have never learned to recognize his presence. We don't know what it is for God to show up, even to the extent, and you might assume that if God showed up here tonight, everybody would be flat on their faces. I'm not sure that that is the case. Sometimes it may be, and we look for that, but it's very possible that one person could be totally riveted, elated, in ecstasy of the presence of God, and the person beside them is dead like a stone to the presence of God. Because a lot of it is to do with recognizing and reverencing, perceiving God's presence in recognition. And I would have to say that I believe most believers don't recognize the presence of God. And I believe I'm a slight authority on this as a preacher, because very often when you preach and you preach on the anointing of the Holy Spirit, hopefully, and you have a sense that the power of God has come into the meeting, a lot of people don't know how to respond to that. And very often, whether it's traditional churches or more progressive churches, or whatever you want to call them, either the organ starts clanging or the drums start going at the very end because we are all afraid of silence and we're afraid, now listen carefully to what I'm about to say, we are afraid of not knowing what to do. And I love it at the end of a meeting when people don't know what to do. But the only peril about that is somebody then has to do something. And that's when you very often scupper the consciousness of the presence of God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that God is the reward of those who diligently seek him and without faith it is impossible to please God. And he that comes to God must believe that he is. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. They must believe. Now, listen to those two words. Believe is. Believe that he is. So I'm asking you the question. God is here by his omnipresence. He's here where two or three are gathered in his name. But if you want to break into experiencing his manifest presence, you will recognize him here by faith. You must believe that he is. Here. Hebrews 11 verse 27 talks about Abraham who endured, who persevered in faith by seeing him who is invisible. Do you see the invisible here tonight? Now, some people have a seer's gift, not many. But we can all see by faith. The first record of experiencing the divine presence from the perspective of a human is the Garden of Eden. And so in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where I asked you to turn, we read of this special garden that is located in Eden. And Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 13 calls it the garden of God. And it was planted by God for Adam. It's beautiful when you think of that. Even before Adam was created, God 
created this trysting place, this meeting place. Now, speculation geographically what the location is of Eden. It might be Iraq, as some people think. I don't know. But what is of greater importance, I think, is what Eden signifies. And even what the word Eden means, because it may derive from the Hebrew verb for pleasure or to luxuriate or delight. So when we read Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, we're getting a bit of a picture into what Eden was meant to be for Adam and God. It's also described in Isaiah 51 as the garden of Yahweh or the garden of the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 51 and verse 3 as I read it. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and singing. Eden is a place of pleasure that is known for joy, for gladness, for thanksgiving, and for singing. It was a a trysting meeting place for Adam and God. It was a personal private retreat for the first man with his maker. A place of rendezvous with the Lord. And it's no surprise that it's described in Scripture as paradise. Paradise. And I want to ask you before we go any further, have you got an Eden? Have you got a place where you meet with God? Now you can meet with God anywhere because in Christ you're under an open heaven 24-7. But I think it is important to have a place special place where you go to meet the Lord. In chapter 3, we get a more intimate indication of how this fellowship may have developed. If you read verse 8, look at Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, obviously, this was after they had sinned and fallen, disobeyed the Lord. But it seems to indicate that they heard the Lord approaching, walking somehow. Now, they knew it wasn't anybody else because there wasn't anybody else around. But this was obviously the way that the Lord came to them, maybe every day. And they instinctively knew that God wanted fellowship with them. And that's beautiful when you think of it. And... um, This seems to indicate how God fellowship with Adam and Eve every day in a natural and a very close way. And almost the casual way that verse 8 is is rendered, would make us think this isn't the first time that this happened. God used to come to them and they would hear his footsteps coming to them and then they would know it's our time to meet with God. And one scholar puts it like this, it's likely that God assumed some form analogous to the human form which was made in his image. He appeared probably like a man to them. (laughs) Probably Jesus in pre-incarnate form appearing to them. And it says in the cool of the day. Now literally in the Hebrew that means the breeze of the day. And when we try and understand that through Hebrew geography and culture, it's a guess it was likely the late afternoon that this was going on. Perhaps 
We can use a bit of our imagination. After Adam and Eve had worked and toiled in the garden, morning and early afternoon, after their work, the Lord came to them and they probably sat down together and had a meal together and had fellowship with the Lord. Beautiful, isn't it? The cool of the day. That was the fellowship with the presence of God that was original. The sad thing is that sin came and broke that fellowship. And and there is an insightful um, phrase here in verse 8. At the end it says, They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Think about this for a moment. They used the provisions of God to hide themselves from the presence of God. Boom. They used the provisions of God to hide themselves from the presence of God. And I want to ask you, how do we do that today? How do we do it individually? Health, wealth, maybe you're not healthy or wealthy, but you've got a measure of health, you've got a measure of wealth and you've got mod cons and you've got distractions in your life you just put your hand in your pocket and you've got a phone you've got your family you've got your friends you've got your job you've got your hobbies you've got all those things and all of those things where they don't veer into iniquity those things are blessings from God aren't they and we give God thanks to them but very often those gifts from God can become a distraction to his presence and I could take a whole series if we were going to go into the area of how the church causes good things, even sacred things, even holy things, to become a distraction to the one thing that is needful, and that is sitting at the feet of Jesus, the present. Make sure that God's gifts and provision even the gifts of his spirit are not ways, because you're proficient in them, ways that you can hide from the presence of God. And I'm not into giving people guilt trips at all. I hate that. And I'm not going to go down that route. But what I'm going to ask you is, how much time do you just luxuriate in his presence? And that doesn't mean you have to be praying all the time. I, I hardly prayed much today in the sense of audibly spoke to God but I spent most of today consciously in his presence so I'm not talking about you know having your quiet time forget about that we're talking about all the time in the presence of God with moments where you go to your trysting place just to sit at table with the Lord the um, old hymn Adam could have sung it, I come to the garden alone. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. There is nothing, nothing like being in the presence of God. When you're really in his presence, I'm not talking about doing your daily reading and ticking off the boxes and going through your shopping list of all the prayer requests and thinking, oh, is this meant to be like heaven because it doesn't feel like that? That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not despising those things, but that's not what I'm talking about. Those can be gifts that can get in the way of actually practicing the presence of God. But then see something else. 
Eden had two important trees. Verse 9 of chapter 2, if you go there, you'll see the Lord God, chapter 2, verse 9, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, many trees, but two that are highlighted here out of the rest of them, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, right at the beginning of the narrative of the history of creation and man's relationship with God, you have at the beginning a choice between the presence of God, intimate communion and fellowship with God, and something else. And so the tree of life speaks of that intimate, deepest communion with God, And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil doesn't represent sin per se. It represents everything else other than true fellowship with God. In fact, what's it called? I mean, the clue's in the name. The tree of the knowledge. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. And God gives knowledge. God has all knowledge. But knowledge on its own puffs up and makes proud. And so there's a lot of folk that eat off the tree of knowledge. And they know a lot of the Bible. And they they think they know a lot about the church and the way things work and all that malarkey. But at the end of the day, you know from knowing them that they are not in touch with God. So there's a lot of knowledge which does not equate with the presence of God. And I'm not anti-knowledge. And there's a lot of good and evil. We know the evil part. But here's knowledge and good that's mentioned here. And many people are moral or are religiously moral. And they are institutionalized in their Christianity. But they have never eaten of the tree of life. Incidentally, Adam never ate of the tree of life which is interesting, we'll see in a moment. But what I want you to understand is God at the very beginning gave a choice. And it was a test in the garden. And we could talk about the problem of evil, and your apologists will sort you out with that one, I'm sure. Um, I'll not enter into that today. But it, it definitely was a test at the very beginning because God wanted humans to choose him freely over everything else. Over knowledge, over good and over evil. And that's always a choice. This is a whole series on the presence, the glorious presence of God. But I want you to understand that it's always a choice for you. And it's even the thing of small, individual, daily, second-by-second choices that will decide whether you luxuriate in the pleasures, eternal ecstasy, of God's nearness, or whether you won't, because of the distractions of some other thing. And you know something, what you need to also realize, and me too, is that the first sin was a choice made in the immediate presence of God. Understand? There were no back alleys in Eden where, you know, Adam slipped out and there was some drug dealer or strip joint or bar or something like that. He was in the immediate presence of Almighty God 
when he turned his attention away from the Almighty to the knowledge of good and evil. Every decision that takes us out of the presence of God is the same. It's sin. It might look like sin. You see all these distractions that we have in the church? All these distractions that we have in a Christian life? If anything is robbing us of the immediate presence of God, we need to waken up to it. If you look at chapter 4, you see Adam's sin was repeated in Cain's life as well. This is after the fall, of course. But in chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14, um, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And if you look at verse 16, So Cain went out from the Lord's presence, and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's a whole lot of believers living in the land of Nod. But his sojourn was away from the presence of God. Here's two lessons for us out of this. First of all, we must make the choice to be in his presence. And secondly, it will be choosing something other than his presence that will take us out of his presence. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 15. With choice brings responsibility. And we read there, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The relationship that we have with God in creation and in redemption, thank God it's a loving, grace-filled relationship that's that's based not on our works, yeah, but free, favor, and unmerited uh, grace from God. But at the same time, it has to be cultivated has to be worked at. Before the fall into sin, Adam and Eve were to work the garden. They were to cultivate their relationship with God and their trysting place. And it's interesting to look at verse 10 of chapter 2 as well. It says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into the headwaters. So the idea is there that Eden was not just a privilege. It was a responsibility. And out of their privilege came a responsibility that benefited others outside the garden because there was a river flowing out of it. And some of us might want to be monks, and I'm I'm not saying everything about monks was bad, but some of us want to hide in some cloister and just have glory time with God, and that's wonderful. But the purpose of it is to be cultivated and worked so that out of our innermost being, as Jesus said, will flow rivers of living water that will touch other people's lives. Psalm 46 and verse 4 said, There is a river, the streams thereof shall make glad the city of our God. The book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation tells us of the river that flows, the river of God from underneath the throne of God and beneath the threshold of the temple. And it comes out and in New Jerusalem there is a river. And at the either side of the banks of that river is the tree of life, the fruit of which brings healing to the nations. See, our fellowship with God is meant being in the presence of God, having meetings where the presence of God is manifest, inevitably, if it's not false fire or just dry ice smoke, if it's the true Shekinah of God, there will be a river that will outflow, that will go to the streets and the lanes and the villages and the highways and the byways of society and touch people. So if ever you hear about acclaimed revival, 
Ask where the river is. Because many of them are dams. Not rivers. And some of them are like the Dead Sea. But there should be a river. One of the best definitions of revival that I know is, yes, revival is when a lot of people are getting born again. Yes, revival is when there is awakening in the church. But revival, to be true revival in the historic and biblical sense, must result in community transformation. People outside the church need to be getting changed, or it's not revival. There are tragic consequences of Adam's choice to step out of the presence of God. You see that in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Shameful nakedness. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 3, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is interesting because they were naked before, weren't they? Before the fall they were naked, but now they're naked and now they know they're naked and all of a sudden they're ashamed. What's that all about? Look at chapter 2 and verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Have you ever thought about that? Was, now I've heard preachers say that, well, what the problem was was conscience. Nakedness is pure. There's no problem with the physical form. God created us. He had the first thought of what a man and a woman should look like. So there's no, nothing sinful inherently with that. The problem is our minds that are fallen, our hearts that are lustful. Well, that's true to an extent. But I want to suggest to you there's more to this. In Psalm 104, verse 2, we read that God covers himself with light like a garment. Did you know that? In fact, when Jesus was transfigured in his glory, the glorious presence of God that was now confined within human flesh, was starting to burst forth and he was sprinting up the Mount of Transfiguration as it exploded out of him. It says that his face was like the noon sun in all its brightness. His clothes whiter than any fuller, any launderer could white them. What's talking about is the Shekinah glory of God that suggests that the righteous and especially the divine being has light as a garment. Even Lucifer, which means light bearer, one of his jobs, of course, was to reflect the glory of the Lord. And mankind has been made in the image of God. And perhaps I'm only suggesting this to you, perhaps Adam and Eve were naked, but they were clothed with light before the fall. Glory. Now, when you think of it, it seems strange anyway that the birds should have feathers and the beasts of the field should have fur, but the pinnacle of God's creation, his image bearer, and the reflector of his divine glory should be completely uncovered. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it like this, it is more than probable that they were clothed in light before the fall, and when they sinned, the light went out. That's what I believe. And they felt their shame. 
Paradise was lost. Chapter 3, verse 24 says, They were driven out. That the weight of those words weigh on you just now. They were driven out of Eden. And I wonder, did they go reluctantly for fear that they would never meet with God again? It says in verse 24 that cherubim were standing, always associated with the presence of God, by the way, as we'll see through this series, cherubim, these fire carriers, associated with the presence and the glory of God throughout Scripture. Here they are standing on earth, And they are the meeting place now between God and man. But they're standing, forbidding man to go in there. And the phrase actually is, they were placed there before Eden. And the word for placed in the Hebrew root actually is connected with the word Shekinah, which which speaks of the manifest presence of God. He caused them to dwell there, Shekinah. It's linked to tabernacle, the word for tabernacle. But this was the visible dwelling place of God in Eden. And now these divine beings had to bar mankind entering that trysting place. They're now separated from it because of their sin and their distraction. And now Eden, this is why we don't know where it is today, because Eden was left to the effects of the curse. Or to put it another way, it deteriorated because of neglect. That will always be the case. The presence of God is consciousness. Our awareness of him with us. Our perception of him in private and in public and in gatherings. It hangs on how much we cultivate. How much we work at it. You know what the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is? Jesus said in what's come to be known as great high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 3, this is eternal life. If you'd ask most Christian evangelicals what eternal life is, they would say, it's getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die. And praise God for that message of hope that we don't need to go to hell, but we actually can be with God forever in the new Jerusalem. That's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is knowing God, and not just knowing God conceptually or intellectually, but knowing him experientially and personally, and knowing him manifestly. This is why Jesus came. For in Christ, paradise is restored. Isaac Watts put it in his great hymn like this. In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Wow. Do you know what that means? It means we can know God Almighty better than Adam ever did. Why? Because Adam never ate of the tree of life. Did you know that? He had Eden with God. But he never ate of the tree of life. And because of the garden called Gethsemane, another garden, 
where Jesus sweat as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was in agony to the point of death as he contemplated as being the very glory of God himself manifest in flesh to take the horror of sin and the consequences of judgment on the cross because of that garden. Because of the garden of Calvary where he became sin for us who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. Where he said he would be glorified in that hour when he would hang between heaven and earth and he would take hell for every man, woman, boy and girl. And because of a garden where there's now an empty tomb and it is written over it, he is not here, he is risen. Because of his eternal life now that we have in us by his blessed Holy Spirit living in us, we eat of the tree of life. We eat of Christ. He is the tree of life. The first thief, Adam, was thrown out of paradise. And there was a thief hanging on a cross who looked to Christ crucified and was welcomed in to paradise. Do you know the tree of life is available to you? Spiritually. The tree of life is essential to sustain God's people. In Revelation 2 and verse 7 we read, He who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The paradise of God right now, Paul tells us, is the third heaven and he was taken up there for a moment or two. So the new Jerusalem now is in the presence of God where God is right now and Jesus is at the right hand of God. And that's going to come to earth one day, I believe, sooner rather than later. And we will be with God and earth and heaven will join. But until that day, spiritually, you can be in heaven in your spirit feeding off the tree of life, Jesus Christ. And you see, when we break bread together as the body of Christ and we drink from the cup together, we ought to be literally in the spirit eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood. We ought to be feeding on his life for he is life and in him is life. And he has lighted every man that came into the world and it's only in him that we live. So you might believe that God is everywhere. Well done. Sunday school, you would get a bookmark for that one. And you might believe that where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's there in the midst. But I want to ask you, do you believe tonight that he is here in all his glory? No, you don't. Not all of you, anyway. And I don't half the time. Because what I do is, no disrespect, I look at your face. 
And I look at your disposition, and I look at the ceiling, and I look at the, and the praise was wonderful, but sometimes it isn't. Not here, but you know what I'm talking about. I get my eyes on the distractions, and I get my, even on, and maybe it's great. Maybe it's a great meeting. You've ever been in a great meeting? And you're in a great meeting. But that's all it is. Now, I'm not saying God is in every meeting. But I'm saying that one of the keys, if we want to encounter the manifest presence or the revival presence of God, we need to start. I beheld the Lord always before me. I beheld the Lord always before me. To actually, by faith, see the living God in our midst, in all his glory. For he is here. Let's be still in the presence of God. Let's be still for a moment or two. Just no music, just quiet for a moment or two. Now this, I'm not playing tricks here. I'm just trying to help you. You can imagine in your mind's eye a line in front of your feet. There is a sense in which you can move from one moment unconscious to the presence of God and in the next to step over that line into the consciousness of the condensed heavy glory of God by faith. But you must choose. You must choose. And maybe there's sin because, you know, I mean, I'm taking that one for granted. Maybe I'm too naive here. You know, you need to get sin out of the road. You need to confess your sins. And he's faithful and just. And you need to renounce your sins and forsake them. I'm not saying you never make a mistake again or you don't slip up. I'm not saying that. But you need to be honest with God and stop hiding. It's all under the blood of Jesus. You don't need to be hiding like Adam and Eve. You don't need to be covering yourself up with these um, leaves, these artificial things. So, but you do need to deal with sin. Sin, sin. And you need to get out of the way. If you want to enjoy the intimate presence of God, you need to be honest with God. But then it's by faith, friends. That's, I mean, you can, the paperbacks and the podcasts and the seminars and the sermons of how to do somersaults and jump through hoops and fast and do what, and all those, I'm not against some of them. I'm just saying, it's by faith. Jesus did it all. All you must do now is believe that he is here that he is and that we come to him through the blood and the torn veil and we can come into the place that the high priest could only go once a year 
and that in fear we can come into the immediate presence of God and we can look on his face in delight and joy as his kids and we can throw our arms around his neck and cry Abba, Abba, Abba Father but it's by faith so would you take a moment in the quietness to just by faith choose to become conscious of the presence, the glorious presence of Almighty God. presence and to know it and you know something we ought to reverence him for who he is and love him because he's worthy and we shouldn't just approach God to get stuff do you know it's like you ever see a child at Christmas jump up on Santa Claus's knee in the shopping centre and say alright Santa how are you doing this week? He's not interested in how Santa's doing. He's wanting this gift for Christmas. And we're a bit like that with God. Do you love him for who he is? Do you love him for him being your papa in heaven? Do you love him for what he did for you? You know, he's worthy. If you didn't get one more thing out of God the rest of your life, He's worthy of it all forever. But you know something? When he's around, he always brings gifts. And he always blesses anyway. And if you have a need tonight, I believe God is ministering to people just right now anyway in his presence. But he does give presents and gifts and he heals and he delivers and he saves and restores and he transforms so if you need Jesus Christ tonight you step out in faith right now some of you are conscious that you're in a weird presence in a weird meeting but you don't understand it all well it's God and you need to step out and meet him you need to repent of your sins and say Lord I'm sorry I know I've gone the wrong way I've turned to other trees and distractions and sins and self Lord, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? I thank you you died for me. And thank you that you love me. Make me your child. Would you do that? Some of you do that tonight. If you've never done that, or you're backslidden and you're turning to other trees and other fruit, other satisfaction, or you're just a religious person or a Christian for many years and you don't know 
the manifest presence of God in your daily life. Now, none of us lives on the mountaintop every day. None of us. I'm frequently in the valley. But I know what it is to be in his presence. Do you know what it is to be in his presence? Well, ask him. Step into it. Ask him to set you free from all other presences. All foreign bodies. All idols. Repent of them and ask him to deliver you that you might know the sweet intimacy of God in your life. Thank you, Lord. If you need prayer for sickness or for oppression from the enemy or for help in any way, we're here to help you and we'd love to pray with you. But could I encourage you? I'm going to hand over. But could I encourage you? Okay. Don't rush. And I'm not, I'm, some of you have places to go to and all that and responsibility. I'm not, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying, would you try? Try to learn not to rush when you know you're in his presence. Some people say to me, David, I just wish he would just show up in front of me. Why doesn't he just show up and say, hello, I'm here. Well, why don't you just sit in your backside for a while and stop moving about, stop talking. And why don't you sit in his presence for a while and see what he does. And he does show up. Maybe not the way we expect him, but he does. And he does draw near. And he does do miracles. And he does flow out of our lives. And we rest in his presence. Father, thank you for your presence here tonight. We do not take it for granted. And we know for us Gentiles here in Belfast, it cost the blood of your son. But we thank you that he's risen and exalted at your right hand and he lives within us. Lord, I pray, would you possess us? Would you possess us like never before? Would you overflow from us? And Lord, would you manifest yourself to us and with us? Come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.